Well, we've been looking at the kings of Israel uh, and uh, Judah in particular. The, the books, First and Second Chronicles, primarily will look at the kings of Judah. Remember, the, king, the nation of Israel divided up into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Northern kingdom called Israel still, the southern kingdom called Judah. First and Second Kings, if you're familiar with those books in the Bible, you know that they primarily look at the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, whereas First and Second Chronicles spend their attention considering the kings of the south or the kings of Judah. And certainly mention is made of the contemporary king from the other nation, but it's just a general rule of thumb. If you're interested in the kings of Judah, then you want to go to First and Second Chronicles. Now, as we've been looking through Second Chronicles, we're, we're probably up to about the eighth or so, 8th or 10th uh, king of Judah, and we've hit sort of a, a bad string of kings, if you will. Not necessarily evil kings. These are kings that the Scripture says were good, but I think the best way to, to define them might be so-so. It was just sort of a so-so period of time in the history of Judah. Uh, we came out of a dark time. Some reformer guys came in. They made some changes. But these were men whose hearts weren't completely given over to the Lord. And as a result of not being completely given over to the Lord, they did some good things, but they did some bad things as well. And so we've been looking at some guys and some lessons for ourselves of things, yeah, we want to do that, and then things, no, you know, I should probably stay away from that sort of a thing. So one of the guys that we looked at recently was Joash, who was a moral reformer and a spiritual reformer. But what we said of Joash was he was a man that possessed a faith, but that it wasn't his own faith that it was a faith that was dependent upon other people. So if his wife was doing well or his kids were doing well, then he was doing well. In his case, it happened to be the high priest, a guy by the name of Jehoiada. After him, we saw a fellow by the name of Amaziah, and we read this of him. It says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but yet not with a whole heart. So Amaziah is a fellow that had a divided heart. And as we saw, that divided heart got him into trouble, just like our divided heart will get us into trouble. We could be totally committed to God here, here, and here, but if we have this one area that I'm keeping for myself, and God, you can't have that. God, I've been very gracious to give you all these other things. I'm keeping this thing over here for myself. We will go to that one thing. That divided heart will bring us down. And it brought uh, this particular fellow here, Amaziah, down. And by the end of his life, he was worshiping the foreign idols. Amazing to believe. But by the end of his life, he went toward that thing that divided his heart. Now today, we're going to look at just one king, a fellow by the name of Uzziah, or Uzziah. Verse 1 of chapter 26 tells us this. It says, And all the people took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and they made him king instead of his father Amaziah. They made him king instead of his father Amaziah. Now Uzziah, the, nowhere in the scripture, verse 1 or anywhere else in the scripture, does it directly come out and say, but one of the things that we know about Uzziah is that he reigned during sort of as a co-regency with his dad. So both of them were king at the same time. Uh, and the reason that we know that, even though it doesn't specifically say that, uh, comes from these three things. Number one, notice verse one. It says that he reigned instead, that uses that word instead of his dad, as opposed to he replaced his dad or something like that when he died. Verse, the second one is found in verse two. It says that he built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. To sleep with your fathers means when he died. And so now we're referencing the idea that after his dad died, whereas previously we didn't talk about that. And then also in chapter 25, verse 27, one of the last few verses of that particular chapter, I'll read it to you. It says, from the time when he turned away from the Lord, they made a conspiracy. Now that's referring to his dad. They made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. So it seems that he was driven off into exile where he was eventually killed. And then upon his death, um, Uzziah became the, the only king. Now, Lachish, how long was he in Lachish? We suspect that he was in this city of Lachish outside of Jerusalem. We suspect that he was there for as many as 15 years. Look at verse 25 of chapter 25. What chapter are we studying? 26 or 25? Hang with me here. We'll get to it. Chapter 25, it says, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, he lived 15 years after the death of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, the king of Israel. So you may not recall, if you, especially if you weren't here, the scenario was this. 
the, the king of Judah, this guy Amaziah, got into a fight with the king of Israel, the, the nation from the north there. Amaziah, Judah, was defeated. The king of Israel did not put him to death, though. He sort of said, you know what, I'll let you live for a little while. And it seems he had him as sort of a puppet king, where he sort of protected him, he kept him in place, but the king of the south had to do everything the king of the north wanted there. That seemed to go on for a period of time. And then we learned that the king of Israel died. And it seems that when the king of Israel died, that the people of Judah are like, great, now we can get rid of this king who we can't stand anyway. And they caused him to flee to this place here that is listed as Lachish. And there he lived for about 15 years. That's probably when Uzziah became the king. So when Amaziah flees for his life into exile, Uzziah becomes the king there in in, uh, Jerusalem. So that's a little bit of conjecture, but it seems logical from uh, the things that we're putting together there. All of that to be said is, since we have two kings that are ruling at the same time, it makes that timeline thing that we've been showing from time to time rather difficult for us to, to be accurate with. So we have a timeline. I want to show it to you here, I think. Do we not? I'm sorry. Oh, there it is. We do have it. Okay, so here is Amaziah. That's the fellow I was talking about that went off into... Um, exile down there and then i think we have another one popping up here uzziah when exactly does uzziah start well if you would go to the end of amaziah's life that would put it around 775 or so 777 or something like that but i'm going to go back a little bit 15 years or so uh, and say that when he went into exile that that's when uzziah became the king this is not going to help you when you're in traffic and someone's frustrating you and you want to live like jesus this is just good information for you to know. All right, so uh, do, we, do we have another slide here? We have to go to the next one. So we're picking up where we left off here. And Uzziah becomes the king somewhere around 780. Okay, that's the rough time period there. So we'll see if it means anything to you. Probably it doesn't. Anyway, verse 3, it says, Now Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. So if he did become king in 782, that's going to cause his uh, reign to go all the way to about 730 or so. So a long time this fellow is king. He's a young man when he becomes king, 16, and it goes on for 52 years. Let's pick up verse 3 and following. It says, And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. That's wonderful, isn't it? He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. So we have reference to a prophet, Zechariah. There's a book in the Bible that is called Zechariah. It's in the Minor Prophets. This is not that Zechariah. That Zechariah comes after uh, the exile. Two chapters ago, we saw that a prophet came to one of the kings and confronted him, and they had him stoned. His name was Zechariah. Obviously, it's not him. He's dead. So this is another fellow whose name is Zechariah here, and he instructed where he helped uh, this king here, Uzziah, uh, serve the Lord, seek the Lord. Now Uzziah, if you're reading First and Second Kings, he's also known as Azariah. All right, so just be familiar with that. Particularly if you're looking, uh, they never mention him by Uzziah in First and Second Kings. There he is called Azariah, but the context of things makes it clear we're talking about the same guy, uh, and he is called clearly a good king. We see, we saw that he set himself to seek God. And that's a phrase which you could translate to seek with great care. So this is a fella who took his faith seriously. He sought with great care to have a relationship with God and to build on that relationship with God. He was committed, it says, to knowing the ways of God. And verse 5 indicates that they were shared with him by Zechariah. There's an excellent book that I'd encourage you to pick up. It was one of our um, resources of the month a little while back. Uh, and it's called Good to Great in God's Eyes. As a, if any of you are in like, business management or whatever, you're probably familiar with the book Good to Great by Jim Collins. So this is sort of a play on that term. But Chip Ingram, you may have heard him on the radio, Chip Ingram has looked basically at what he saw as great Christians in history. Some contemporary, some from the past or whatever. Guys and gals that just seemed to get it. And you would look at their life and you'd say, man, I, I wish I walked with Jesus like that guy does. Uh, and he looks at characteristics that are in common with those people that are great Christians, so to speak, 
Uh, and then he writes about him. It's a great book, and I'd encourage you to pick it up here. I, I think that Uzziah would have read a book like that. He was committed to his faith. He wanted to grow in his faith. He wanted to be further along in the journey with Jesus than he was when he started. I want to look more like him next year than I did at the beginning of this particular year. He was committed to these things here. And when he discovered what God wanted for him, he was very careful to obey those things. You know, there are times in my life where I'll study and I'll learn and I'll get all sorts of knowledge about what God wants for me, but that doesn't do anything for me, does it? Until I say, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'll obey. It doesn't matter what you know. It's what you're putting into practice. And here what we see about this particular fellow Uzziah here is he learned these things. Zechariah the prophet shared these things with him, taught him, but then he put them into practice, which is even more important. He was careful to obey. Uzziah wasn't a guy who just sort of went with the flow of things and figured, eh, my faith will be fine. I'll, I'll just, sure, I'll be further along if I just keep popping into church here and there. If I keep, you know, reading my Bible every now and again, I'm sure I'll be okay. He knew that unless he was diligent about his faith, that he wasn't going anywhere in his faith. And so he invested himself into it. Or as the passage said, he set his heart to seek God. And in doing so, he found out, he found the Lord, and he found the Lord's will for his life. Look at verse 5, the closing words, and it said, And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. And why? Why is that? Why would God make his life prosper as long as he was seeking him? Because as he was seeking him and then putting those things into action, his life was in the center of God's will. And so God could prosper that. He wasn't running off over here doing something where God would look at that and say, I can't bless that. He was where, exactly where God wanted him to be, and God could bless that. So God was prospering him. Notice the uh, sort of the, the flow chart, if you will. He sought, God revealed, he obeyed, God prospered. And I think the exact same thing is true in our lives today. As we seek the Lord, as we obey the Lord, then we begin to experience the blessing of the Lord. And it's unfortunate we even have to say it here, but it's common in Christianity now. When I refer to the blessing of the Lord, I'm not talking about financially the blessing of the Lord. That may come, and the Lord may bless you in that particular way. I'm just talking about his hand on your life. I'm talking about having a peace in relationship with him. I'm talking about doing the things that he wants to do, and he can give you success in those particular areas here. So they sought, they obeyed, and then they experienced the blessing. Now, as we move on in the chapter, the next uh, 10 verses or so, we're going to look at the ways in which God was blessing him. And I think we see three different categories of, of how God blessed Uzziah. The first is found in verses 6 to 8, the second verses 9 to 10, and then the final part in verses 11 to 15. The first part, verse, starting in verse 6, has to do with victory over his enemies. So let me read that to you. It says, He went out and he made war against the Philistines, and he broke through the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod, and he built cities in the territory of Ashdod and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the Meonites. The Ammonites paid tribute to Uzziah, and his fame spread even to the border of Egypt because he became very strong. So a number of cities that are mentioned there, you see Gath, you see Ashdod, it, it mentions the Philistines and the Ammonites and so on. Um, <coughs> most of those cities are located in the extreme south of Israel. Um, so if Israel is a straight, straight up and down rectangle, down here at the bottom corner, the left-hand corner, right-hand, I guess how you're looking, uh, that would be where Egypt is. Between Egypt and Judah, or Israel, that is where you would find those Philistine cities. So many of those cities that are mentioned there. And then on the eastern side of the uh, nation of Israel and Judah is where the Ammonites are. So these cities that are surrounding the nation of Judah, or the kingdom of Judah, he has victory over them. Um, that's significant. We'll come back to it, though, in a second. Verse 9 tells us the second way that God prospered Uzziah, and that was by giving him success in his agricultural endeavors. Look at verse 9 and 10. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem, at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle, and he fortified them. He built towers in the wilderness. He cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds, both in Shephelah and in the plain. And he had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in the fertile lands, for he loved the soil. So it talks about towers in Jerusalem. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem with us, 
on our trips uh, to Israel, it's, this is difficult here because there's a wall that goes around Jerusalem now. That wall was built about 1200 A.D. So that's not the wall that is being spoken of here roughly 800 a, uh, B.C., so 2,000 years earlier. So it's a new wall um, that is there. So you, these gates don't match up with the gates you're familiar with. What I can say is if you are familiar with uh, the Jaffa Gate, which goes into the modern section of Jerusalem in the mall area, underground mall for those that uh, recall there, that's roughly where these gates were that are being referred to. And he built towers there to protect the people of uh, Judah that would be inside of Jerusalem. It also talks about uh, the success, or if you will, that he's having um, on the farmlands and the, vine, the, the um, vineyards and so on there. And again, I'll come back to that in a second. And then thirdly, starting in verse 11, it says that Uzziah had all sorts of wisdom for the, the building of sort of military technology that was uh, ahead of his game, You'll see, or his time. You'll see that he had uh, catapults and things like that. It's it said that the Romans invented that particular method here, um, but they, they obviously took it from some other ideas that had come before them here, and it seems Uzziah had some of those ideas, whether he was the first one or not, who knows, but let's read that. It says, Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war, in divisions according to the numbers in the muster, made by Jael, the secretary, and Messiah, the officer, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's commanders. The whole number of heads of fathers' houses of mighty men of valor was 2,600. And under their command was an army of 307,500, who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared for all the army shields and spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, he made engines invented by skillful men to be on towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. That's the idea of a catapult. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. So we see three areas God's given him victory. Over his enemies, uh, the idea of agricultural endeavors, and then this idea of weapons to engage the enemy in battle. And I think there's parallels for us and the way in which God blesses us as we set our heart to seek the Lord as well. So first, the Lord gave him victory over his perennial enemies. Have you discovered in your life, the more you set your heart to seek the Lord, to hear his voice, and then to obey, those three things that we talked about earlier, that you then begin to get victory over your perennial enemies, those sins that, you know, as it says in Hebrews, that so easily beset you, those things you just keep on going back to, I'm a jerk, I'm metaphorically speaking here, you know, I have a bad attitude here. And when I seek the Lord and I seek to do His will and, I, and I'm taking that time meeting with Him, I tend to have a much better attitude than when I'm just sort of going through the flow and natural Greg is allowed to come out. You understand what I'm saying? And so every one of us, we have those sins that so easily beset us, those things that we go back to. And what you go back to is going to be different from what that person over there goes back to. But when you're close to the Lord and you're seeking to do His will and you're looking to meet with Him, you find suddenly, you look back on your day, and you're like, I didn't yell at a single person today. Lord, you're amazing. And suddenly that becomes a week, and it becomes a year, and suddenly you've had victory in that area, and God has delivered you from that particular sin. So this idea of victory over our perennial enemies. The second one, Uzziah and the people of Israel, that God caused them to be fruitful in their farming endeavors. Most of us aren't farmers here, but Jesus did say, that he chose us and he appointed us that we would bear fruit and that our fruit would abide. Another place he said, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now obviously the fruit we're talking about that there is not uh, vegetables and things like that that are being produced, physical things here, but it's the fruit of God doing a work in our lives. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is joy and it's peace. Paul says it's patience and it's kindness and it's goodness and it's gentleness and it's self-control. Can it be said of you that you are a person that, that loves, that you're kind, that you're good, that you're gentle, that you're patient, that you're self-controlled? Well, that's what God wants to do in you. So if you stop and you take inventory of your life and you look at those things and none of them can be said of you, then you've got to say, Lord, it's your desire that these fruit, this fruit be produced in my life and it's not, Lord... I got a problem. I got to get right with you. 
Lord, do a work from the inside out and change me. That's God's desire. And that is what glorifies him. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say anything about, you know, go out and tell, you know, a million people and have 5,000 of those people come and be converts or whatever. It says simply let God change you from the inside out and that will bring glory to the Lord. I think that's awesome. And so as we seek the Lord, as we hear his voice, and as we obey him, God produces a fruit in us. John chapter 15, which talks about that, those two things that I just mentioned to you there, it, the whole theme of that chapter is Jesus starts it off by uh, referencing the idea of abiding in me. Or we would say in our case here, abide in in Christ. And what does it mean to abide in Christ? And another good book is the book Abide in Christ. I forget who wrote it. I think Tozer or, or something. Uh, but I'd encourage you to pick that one up and read that as well. Lots of books to read this summer, everybody. Uh, but Abide in Christ. And one of the, what does it mean to abide in Christ? It means to, be, to seek, to be close enough to hear the voice of the Lord and to know the heart of the Lord. And then after you've learned those things, to follow that leading. To seek to be close enough to hear the voice of the Lord and to know the heart of the Lord. And then after you've heard those things and learned those things, to follow his leading. And as we do that, that is how we're able to bear much fruit. If you haven't read it lately, I'd encourage you, read John chapter 15. And take your time with it and meditate on it. Maybe that could be your entire devotional for a week. It's just to consider that verse and see what God would do in your heart with it. And then finally, it says that he was equipped with all sorts of specialized weapons, for warfare. That sounds a whole lot to me like Ephesians chapter 6. And Paul says there, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. And the result of a a believer taking up the whole armor of God and all that that means, and we've done a, a study on Ephesians 6 that we can get to you there, but the result of all of that is being able to stand firm in the faith. Encountering the spiritual conflict that will come our way, certainly, and being able to stand firm. So I see some parallels here that we can learn lessons from Uzziah. Set our heart to seek the Lord. When you hear his voice, obey. So he's a lesson for us to set our hearts to seek the Lord. But Uzziah is also a lesson for us of what not to do, unfortunately. He was a man who accomplished wonderful things for the kingdom. He expanded the geographic boundaries of the the kingdom of Judah. He earned the respect of multiple uh, surrounding nations. And the result of that was that the kingdom became secured and so the people could live at peace. During this time in the history of the nation of Israel, both in Judah as well as up in Israel, the nation was at its greatest blessing, if you will, as far as borders were expanding and so on and peace with surrounding nations, as at any time since Solomon, uh, when he ruled some 200 and some years earlier here. So it was a time of great peace and prosperity in both of the kingdoms, but particularly we're looking at here the kingdom of Judah. But even despite all those things, like his predecessors, Uzziah stumbled. And he stumbled in such a way that he fell. Now, not all the kings were good, as we said, but those that were, we can learn both positive and negative from them. Asa was a good king, the scripture says. But you may recall, when confronted for his sin, he refused to repent. Joash was a good thing, but he allowed himself to be influenced by others to do evil. And now we come to a point in Uzziah's life when he makes choices that we would be wise to not follow. This is found in verse 16 and following. It says, But when Uzziah was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, And he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the son of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn the incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. 
Now we ha- he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests, they looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, he lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. I said just a few minutes ago that Uzziah was one of the most successful kings in the history of Israel, north and south. And yet, in that strength, he grew proud, the scripture says. And in his pride, suddenly something happened. Something clicked in his heart where the rules no longer applied to him. Yeah, sure, the rules apply to everybody else, but they don't apply to me. Because in his strength, he became proud, and the rules didn't apply to him. Notice, it says in verse 16, he was unfaithful to the Lord his God... And he went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now that may not seem like much to us. Because our holy places, this nice room that we're in, are are not anything like what a temple is. Or even churches. You know, if you come from a high church background where it's a very formal place, very somber place, maybe when you walk into that, even in those instances, all of us can go in. All of us can make our way to the front of the room or something there uh, and light a candle or something like that, but not in the temple. Exodus chapter 30, this is part of those chapters where Moses is revealing to the people of Israel what the tabernacle worship would be, and then eventually the tabernacle was temporary, the the temple would be permanent, what the temple worship would look like. And one of the things there, it talks about specifically in chapter 30, is what's called the altar of incense. And when you get a chance, you can go back and you, look, you can look at the full chapter. But what you'll notice is, very specifically, it says Aaron, who is the high priest, and, and his, eventually his descendants, that they would be the only ones allowed to go to this altar of incense and light the, the fire uh, there on this altar. It reads this in verse 8. It says, And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or burn offering or grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. It is set apart, it is most holy to the Lord. Aaron only and his descendants, those guys that would be the high priest after him. And yet Uzziah, he takes it upon himself and and perhaps he's taking a page out of uh, the surrounding nations around him, particularly Egypt, in which the political leader also becomes the one and only religious leader of the society. Whatever it is, he makes this determination that the rules don't apply to him. I know what it says. I know what everybody else does, but I'm Uzziah, and I'll do what I'm going to do. I'm king for 52 years, or however long it may have been. And so he goes in, and he lights this incense uh, fragrance there. And you go back again to why, and it says for us, because in his strength he was lifted up with pride. During those years where Uzziah was dependent upon God, God was able to accomplish great things through him. But as soon as he became strong in his own eyes, he began to change. And as a result, God was no longer able to work through him. I find it interesting. We've been studying on Wednesday nights the books of the minor prophets. And one theme that we see over and over and over again as we're studying these books, and we're moving pretty quickly. I think we're on our fourth book already uh, for the summer. But one of the things that we're seeing over and over again is the idea that when the people were blessed, when the people were at peace with the surrounding nations, when the people were prospering, before you know it, and it may have been 50 years, but in a a chapter of the Bible, that could be one chapter, or in a book of the Bible, it could be one chapter. But before you know it, their heart went astray. And the so-called blessing, maybe it's not as much of a blessing as we think it is. Because we're learning that there's a very real danger that during this time of prosperity, that we might drift from God. G. Campbell Morgan, he said these things. He said, man, dependent on God, is independent of everything else. And then he continued, he said, the history of men affords persistent witness to the subtle perils which are created by prosperity. More men are blasted by prosperity than by adversity. It's a perfect verse for, or a quote for people of the United States of America. Every one of us, 
is blessed with great prosperity in comparison to the rest of the world. Campbell Morgan continues, he says, in the moment when the heart begins to feel independent of God because of personal strength, that very strength then becomes our weakness. And unless there be repentance and return, ruin is inevitable. Are each of us any less susceptible to pride leading to our destruction when we are in the place of prosperity and success? So think about financial success and the result of financial success causing us to be susceptible to pride. How easy it is to be dependent on the Lord when we have nothing, not even our daily portion of bread. God, my kids are starving in the other room. They're hungry, Lord. Please provide, right? Dependent on Lord for for serious things in that regard here. But when everything is going wonderfully well and there's plenty of money you know, stacked away in the bank and there's no reason to believe that the money's not going to keep flowing in, soon we stop trusting. We don't need the trust anymore because there's food in the cupboard. You see where I'm going with this? I think of Nebuchadnezzar when he walked out on his balcony there and he looked at the great kingdom of Babylon and his words were something to the effect of, look at this great empire that I have built. And he was lifted up in pride. Think about from the perspective of spiritual success. You know, you're not stumbling and falling as much as you used to. You're not doing those sorts of things that even you would say, what am I nuts? I'm supposed to be a follower of Christ. Why am I doing this? Why am I talking this way? Why am I going these places? Why am I doing these things? You're having spiritual success. People are looking to you and they're writing books about you, good to great in God's eyes, and they're pointing to you. So you're having spiritual success in life. Is it not true, though, that it's in those instances of spiritual success that perhaps we're most at risk to stumble and fall because we're not as dependent on the Lord anymore? I don't struggle with certain sins that I used to struggle with when I first came to the Lord. And there were times in my early Christian walk back in the late 1980s where every day, every moment of the day, I was crying out to God, God, I want victory in this area. God, I don't want to give in to that sin. Well, time has gone on and I've had victory in those areas and they're not, my propensity is not toward those things anymore. And I don't go to the Lord anymore and cry out to him to preserve and to protect me. And one of the things that I learned when I was struggling with certain areas of sin is to use wisdom. And so I wouldn't put myself in certain circumstances because I knew I was weak to go in those circumstances. But I haven't fallen in that area in forever. And the foolish thing would be now to think, I can handle that. I can take that on. It's not going to hurt me. I don't struggle with that anymore. And once I start thinking that way, I'm setting myself up to fall in that area and to be knocked down in that particular area. And Solomon, when he was talking to his son, we have this in the book of Proverbs, uh, he was teaching him about the way of wisdom. And in doing so, you can read the book of Proverbs. That's your homework again. John 15, the book of Proverbs, the book good to great in God's eyes and abide in Christ. You got a lot of homework this week. Uh, but Solomon, in the, uh, in the book of Proverbs, he kept talking about to his son, my son, guard your heart. He kept saying, guard your heart, guard your heart, guard your heart. And in Proverbs chapter 16, he was telling him, among other things, to guard his heart against pride seeping in. He says this in 16:18, and you've heard this, I'm sure, pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit comes before a fall. Guard your heart against pride. Pride was the thing that tripped up the Apostle Peter on the night of Jesus' betrayal. Remember, they had that what we call now the Last Supper meal. And during that Last Supper meal there, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, you will all fall away tonight because of me. And one by one, they're looking around. I'm not going to fall away. What are you talking about? And Peter seemed to have the nerve to, to say out loud this statement of pride, I believe. He said, Peter answered him, Though every one of these guys... Can you imagine the other guys? Hey, I can hear you. You know what I mean? He says, though every one of these guys fall away, I would never fall away from you. I would die with you if I had to. And Peter knows, or Jesus knows what's going to happen there. And he's like, okay, Peter. And of course we know that he did deny. And just like Solomon Solomon taught, I should say, a haughty spirit comes before the fall. The Apostle Paul learned this lesson without the fall. So Peter learned the lesson through the fall. 
And he came out on the other side a humbled man. You remember after Jesus had rose again, that he, he came to the disciples. They were there on the edge. They were fishing. He was there on the beach. And he's cooking some fish. And he says, come and sit. And they're like, it's the Lord. And they go and they run and they hang out with him and, and so on. And Jesus takes Peter aside. You can read it, homework, at the end there of the Gospels. And he takes Peter aside and he sits with him. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter doesn't really know what to say. And he says to him again, do you love me? Do you love me? And he goes through this process there. And finally Peter says, I don't know. You know. I think I do. I thought I did. And I blew it. And he was a humbled man. God had taught him a lesson through the failure. Now, in the instance of Paul, if you will, the Lord preserved Paul from the failure because he taught him a lesson as well. And so we need to learn these lessons here. I want to learn it like Paul. I don't want to go through the failure. I want to learn it on the front side, if you will. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we learn that the, that the Lord himself, God himself, gave Paul something that is called a thorn in the flesh. I don't exactly know what the thorn in the flesh is. People have differing views. Some thought it was a sickness that Paul had picked up that just stayed with him, a bug, if you will, that stayed with him and just made life very, very challenging and difficult. Some people think it had to do with uh, the blindness that Paul um, faced when he was knocked off the horse and met the Lord and that he had to carry that around here. But it, it tells us in, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Three times. Now, I, and I've said this before. I think Paul probably prayed a hundred times. God, I just want this to go away. I want this to go away. But three times he said, I'm serious. He called the prayer chain. He fasted. He got everybody involved. This thing must go. And I need all your help to... to Go before the throne of God. So three times he pleaded, and the Lord's response to him was, you'll be okay. You'll be all right with that. My grace is sufficient for you. And Paul, you will be more powerful in your weakness than you would be in your strength. When we know that we are too weak, that we must rely upon God and his power, when we know that we're too weak to remain strong in the faith, then God can show himself strong through us. When we know that unless I pour myself into God's word, unless I commune with him all the time in prayer, Paul says, pray without ceasing, unless I know that I am desperate for God, for spiritual strength to walk this walk, that all of us are called to walk, then if we're strong in our own eyes, we won't do it. But when we realize that we are weak, the result is that we're in the perfect place for God to show us his strength. When we're convinced that trying to walk this walk by ourselves, I can do this, I don't need fellowship. I don't need to go to church, I don't need to get involved in a small group, I don't need to have fellowship with my wife or my family around the things of the Lord. I don't need the support of brothers and sisters in the faith. When we come to a realization that we do need those things, we will work very hard to keep ourselves in fellowship. We'll make sure, even when I'm tired, I'll get to church on Sunday. We'll make sure that we connect with people. We'll make sure that we ask real questions of our brothers and sisters in the faith. We don't just sort of go through the flow. How you doing? Good. Me too. Good. All right. See ya. How about that game the other day? Did you see that? But we'll dig deeper in relationship with people. And when people say, how you doing? We'll respond in honesty. Usually great. Last night, not so great. I need your help. Would you pray for me? And we'll be honest with people because we know the closeness of that fellowship will strengthen us. And as it says in Hebrews, we won't forsake the assembling of the brethren together. We'll make sure that we gather. And the result is that God uses that fellowship to encourage us and to spur us on to even greater godliness. When we realize our weakness, then God can show himself strong through us. Many years ago, my niece, she was over the house and she was helping me. I was in the backyard and I was planting some bushes. If you've ever been over to my house, you know that across the back fence, we got about these 10-foot bushes that run the entire length of the fence. Well... They weren't always 10 foot. Uh, and my niece was over. She was about four or five. Now she's 22, I think. Uh, she's about four or five. And she wanted to come and she wanted to help me dig holes for these trees. And I don't know if you ever try to dig holes with a four or five-year-old. You know that they're not very good at digging holes here. And part of me just said, go away, kid. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll be done a lot quicker if you don't bother me, sort of thing. But I'm a nice uncle, as uh, you could imagine. I'm sure. And so I said, all right, kid. So I gave her, she had a name, her name's Stephanie. I gave her the shovel 
And she began to dig, you know, and she sort of like carved on the dirt a little bit and had a little teeny little cup there of such. And nothing was happening. She's trying, and I'm like, come on, you got to go. Let's dig, 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 sort of thing. And after about three minutes, maybe, she finally said, I don't want to do this anymore. And she left. And I was like, good. I didn't want you to do anything. You know? <laughs> I was great. I think the Lord does that with us. That he sort of lets us on our own. He hands us the shovel. Go ahead, man, take some holes. We carve around a little bit, make little cups you know, out in the field there. We don't really get very far, and we finally turn the shovel back to him and say, God, I can't do it. God, I'm not able. I need you to help me. And I think then the Lord is like, let's do it. I'm so excited you came to the end of yourself. I'm so grateful you gave the shovel back to me. Let me show you how to dig some holes. And then the holes are getting dug, and, and I, I don't know where this analogy is going to go, but good things then are happening there. And the lesson that we learned from Uzziah is to let go and let God. Give it over to him. God, it's you. You do the work. Guard our hearts from being lifted up with pride is the lesson that we learned from Uzziah. Guard ourselves from thinking. The rules don't apply to me anymore. I can do whatever I want. I'm fine. I'm the king. And keep ourselves from deceiving ourselves into thinking that we are strong in our own strength. Uzziah teaches us to ever remain dependent on God for daily strength. And if we do that, then the thing we read in verse 15 will happen in our lives as well. Again, look at verse 15. He was marvelously helped. God helped him. Now, as the passage moves on here, it continues. It says that he was lifted up with pride. He went into the temple where he shouldn't have been. And then the high priest and 80 lesser priests, they run in and they confront him. They don't care who he is. I don't care who you are. Get out of here. You're not allowed to be here. You read the passage of Uzziah. The priests went in after him, 80 priests of the Lord, who were men of valor, and they withstood Uzziah to his face. They said, it's not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priest, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out. It's a, nicely, it says in our version, go out of the sanctuary, please. I think they said, get out. For you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Uzziah had forgotten that the Lord must be worshipped according to his way and not Uzziah's way. God must be approached according to his way and not man's way. He had instituted a very clear priestly system whereby the offering was to be brought by the high priest. And you know, I think it's similar in our day because our father has decreed without beating around the bush at all. It's either you believe the scripture or you don't. And that's okay. If you don't want to believe it, don't believe it. But don't say it doesn't say it. The scripture is very clear that it says that there is only one way that is given among men whereby they much, must be saved. God has decreed one way. Just as back in the days of Uzziah, the priests alone are allowed to come in, not you, Uzziah. And we're not making any exceptions. Well, same thing in the New Testament. There's one way given among men. Look at Acts 4. It says, and this Jesus has become our cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Could it be any clearer? Of course, we know Jesus said, I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. And so any attempt to come to God in any other way other than through Jesus and his work for us on the cross, it'll bring us, as it says in Chronicles, no honor from the Lord God. Sincerity won't get us there. There are people that are very sincere, but they're sincerely wrong. So sincerity doesn't get you there. Good works doesn't get you there. The Bible refers to those good works in the presence of God as filthy rags before him. Don't dare bring them. Muhammad or Buddha or any other false system, they all come up short. Only Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he said, no one comes to the Father unless he goes through me. And again, either Jesus was a liar, he was Lord, as C.S. Lewis says, or he was a crazy man. And as you read through the Gospels, you see this isn't a crazy man we're dealing with here. So he was either a liar or he actually was who he said he was. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And believing in that work, that's what gains us admittance into the presence of of God. Any other attempt to come to God in any other way is to call Jesus a liar. Now let's move on to verse 19. This is Uzziah's response. They said, get out, you don't belong here. And it says in verse 19 that Uzziah was angry. You remember back in chapter 25, King Amaziah angrily yelled at the prophet that was rebuking him. He said, stop. 
I don't want to hear another word. Stop. We saw in chapter 24, the fellow Joash had Zechariah stoned to death in order to stop him. And here you have now, uh, and also in chapter 16, Asa, he imprisoned a prophet. But here you have now Uzziah refusing to listen to the rebuke that is coming his way. And as each of those kings before him, he hardened his heart and he refused to repent. And that hardening of his heart and the refusal to repent, it brought about his own destruction. Look at the rest of verse 19. It said he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead, and and so on. And the priest rushed him out of there. Now the modern day term for leprosy is what's called Hansen's disease. Hansen's disease today, leprosy today, is a little bit different from the way it's described in the Bible. In the Bible, essentially any skin disease that a person picked up was referred to as leprosy. And then you can read in Leviticus, I think it's chapter 13 and 14, homework, write that down, but somewhere in Leviticus there, it talks about how the priest would inspect the person to see if this particular skin disease was a contagious skin disease that they should be concerned about, or if it wasn't a contagious one, and, and how to declare that person clean, and so on. So leprosy in the scripture typically uh, really depends on any form of a skin disease. Today's Hansen's disease, or what we call leprosy, It's a disease which attacks the nervous system. And what it does is it causes the inflicted person to no longer be able to feel pressure or pain, particularly at the nerve ending, so your extremities, your fingers, your toes, your nose, and things like that. And the result of it is, since I can't feel anything anymore in those particular areas, the area becomes dead, I can cut myself or something like that and not know it, and infection sets in and all sorts of stuff like that. So that's not exactly what we're referring to here. This guy is getting a skin disease right on the top of his forehead here. They rush him out of the temple. It says in Leviticus 13, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip, you know, so he doesn't breathe on anyone, and he will cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease because he's unclean. And he shall live alone, and his dwelling shall be outside of the camp. How would you like to live like that for the rest of your life? To have to be far enough away from anyone so that you don't contaminate them. For all your life, to have to go like this whenever you approach people. Have to cry out at all times, unclean, unclean. This sort of stuff. It 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 was devastating. Now, not everybody that got leprosy in the Bible was being judged for it. But there are a number of key instances where people that were being judged were judged with the leprosy. Here's the one, Miriam, I think it's Numbers chapter 12 or so. She stood up and her and Aaron, they kind of uh, challenged Moses and his authority. And she was struck, it says, with leprosy there. It's very interesting because Moses, who was the one that was being challenged, responded to the Lord. I like what it says, Numbers 12. It said, and Moses cried to the Lord, oh God, please heal her, please. Can you just hear his heart? For his sister, knowing she made a mistake here and all this, and God, please heal her, please heal her. I don't want that life to be hers, out in some, you know, uh, secluded place by herself, completely cut off. A person that had leprosy, the intimacy of another person was forever removed from their life. The touch of another person was forever removed from their life. They'd never feel it again because of the disease. And that's why, in the context of things, that's why Matthew chapter 8 is so remarkable. I don't know if you're familiar with it. You'll know once I tell you the story. In Matthew chapter 8, a leper comes before the crowd that Jesus is in. Unclean, unclean, all this sort of stuff, staying far enough away so as to not taint him. And the scripture says that Jesus goes to him and he touches him. And the whole idea here, we can read it. It says, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand, and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. Well, we know that Jesus liked to heal people, and he did heal people. But there are plenty of instances in the scripture where Jesus spoke to a person, and the person was healed. If you're going to speak to anybody, speak to the leper. Don't touch the leper. 
But Jesus was doing something far greater than healing this man of this skin disease. He was doing something that developed in the guy's heart. How hurtful, how painful must it have been for this guy to realize, I will never be touched again by another human being. I'll be secluded from other humans. Lepers usually formed a village where they didn't really care. But he was put off to the side. When people, when children, when moms saw this guy coming, they took their kids and they put them behind him because this elephant man or whatever is coming and it's too freaky for us. We need to protect ourselves from him. And it's to that person that Jesus will go up and he'll touch him. By the way, this sort of study is what the meeting Jesus study is going to be like on Thursday night. Looking at the humanity of Jesus and the way that he dealt with people and the claims that he made and the way that he interacted with people. I'd encourage you for yourself or for your friends, go to that meeting here. But Jesus goes and he touches him and the man is healed in more ways than one. I think Jesus is trying to say to him, you're not dead. You're not an outcast. You're a human being and I love you. And so in this case here of Uzziah, here he is now. He's put off to this leper village, if you will, or uh, he's put off to be by himself here. And so with the king unable to perform his duties, Jotham, it says, verse 21, and Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. So he takes over the governing. And we'll look at him more in chapter 27, continuing on in verse 22. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote, and Uzziah slept with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belongs to the kings, for they said... He is a leper, and Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. I think leprosy is a fitting disease for a person that is strong in their own eyes to be struck with. Because what the modern-day leprosy, what it does is it deadens the nerves, as I said, so that they're beyond sensation. The nerve endings, if you will, they become calloused. They become hardened over. And that's exactly what pride does to each of our hearts. It hardens our hearts. It, it calluses it, if you will, so that we can't feel, we can't sense. We used to be so careful that we wouldn't offend the Lord, but now because we're heart, hardened of heart, we can't feel anymore what God is trying to do. It hardens our hearts so that we're no longer able to feel the touch of the Lord. It creates, if you will, a cataract upon our eyes so that we can't see clearly anymore. It deafens our ears, if you will, so that we're no longer to hear the voice of the Lord. And I think the lesson of Isaiah for each of us is that we would be careful to take heed that pride doesn't set in and cause us to fall. And I want to end with these words from the Apostle Paul. This is 1 Corinthians 10. He says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And sometimes taking that escape requires a very humbling response on our parts. I think the best picture of it, and I'll leave you with this, is Joseph in the Old Testament, when he is faced with the temptation of Potiphar's wife, what does he do? He runs out of the room. He does a foolish thing, and he runs away from this lady. She grabs a hold of his cloak, and it stays there in that particular room. But he runs because he doesn't want to fall. That's a foolish thing. Pride would say, I can stay. I'll be fine. Humility says, I better get out of here. I'm going to fall. He was a man who realized at any time that he could fall, and so he wouldn't let himself be tempted beyond I'd encourage you, search your heart. Let God show you areas in which you're depending on yourself. Let Him break you down, if you will. Because in your weakness, that's when you're truly strong. Amen?